0: Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Michelle, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program, What's New in Precision Medicine, and today's program is supported by Novartis Oncology and the Diana Napoli Fund, and I really want to thank them for their support to this program, and not just for this particular program, but for many of our programs that they support as well. Uh, Now, we have on the program today over um, 166 participants, and you come from all over the United States. You come from both urban, rural, frontier, and suburban communities. Um, And um, we also have international participants today from Canada, France, the United Kingdom. So this is a bit of a global call as well. Uh, Now, before... Um, I introduce our first speaker. I do have a few questions I'd like to ask each of you. Those of you who are live streaming the program will be able to see the questions and will be able to actually um, rate them, this kind of rating. Um, And so um, I'm going to start with the first question. The first question is, on a scale of one to five, with one the highest rating and five the lowest rating, please select your rating. I understand how precision medicine is different from targeted treatments. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. The next question is I understand the role of precision medicine in deciding the treatment options for breast cancer, colon cancer, lung cancer, leukemia, and blood cancers. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. The next question is, I know how precision medicine contributes to treatment options and quality of life. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two more questions. I know the role of the pathologist in precision medicine. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. and then this will be the last question. I know the guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, and discussion of open notes. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. I want to thank you all for participating. In these questions, it really helps us to better understand um, what you know coming into this program, and also it helps us to better plan programs to better meet your needs. So, um, thank you all for doing for participating. And now, it's really my great pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Genro Grana. Dr. Graner is Medical Director, MD Anderson Cancer Center at Cooper Division, Division Head, Hematology and Medical and The Cooper Health System Professor of Medicine, Cooper Medical School at Rowan University. And Dr. Grana will be addressing understanding precision medicine, overview and value of precision medicine, the role of precision medicine in informing treatment decisions for breast cancer, and talking with your doctor about precision medicine and its benefits. It's my great pleasure now to turn this
2: program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Grana. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here this morning. Thank you. Uh, Let's begin by talking about precision medicine. Um, In its current form, it is the tailoring of treatment and prevention approaches to the individual features of a cancer or of a patient, Uh, and that's important because we're going to highlight the differences between targeted to the patient versus targeted to the cancer. Sometimes this has been called personalized medicine, and it's the concept of taking into account differences in the genetic makeup of an individual and the genes and proteins that are differentially expressed by a tumor. This is not unique to oncology, as it's also being evaluated in many other fields of medicine, so you may hear about it more broadly. In its current state, precision medicine is based on genetic testing of the individual, or tumor assessment, be it tumor assessment looking for specific proteins or tumor assessment looking for specific genetic alterations. And I'm going to go into this a little bit. First, genetic testing of the individual. Here we're looking for genes related to hereditary forms of cancer that can help guide management of the patient. We're looking at panels of 20 up to 70 to 80 genes that can be assessed, And an example of benefit from this type of genetic testing is the fact that we now have data that platinum compounds and PARP inhibitors can be helpful in individuals with BRCA1 and 2 mutations in breast and ovarian cancer. And we have similar data looking at genetic alterations of the Lynch syndrome family for colorectal cancers and other cancers. So again, genetic testing of the individual. Tumor assessment uh, can be done looking for specific proteins or, more specifically, looking at genetic assessment of a cancer with technology called next-generation sequencing using platforms such as Foundation Medicine, CARES, or institutional panels that many institutions have at their own site. These panels are done on the tumor and help identify genetic alterations in up to hundreds of genes that are specific to that tumor and that can be used to guide treatment selection. A specific example in breast cancer is mutations in a gene called PI3 uh, kinase, and that has led to a drug called Picray that can be used specifically to target that cancer. Now, what's the value of precision medicine? It really is to help tailor treatment more specifically to the particular cancer and its features with the hope of improving response by taking advantage of the vulnerability of that specific tumor. Some trials have shown very improved results, duration of response, number of patients responding when genetically targeted therapy has been selected. So again, this is a particularly promising field. Now, let's talk about the role of precision medicine in treatment of breast cancer. Some of the earliest forms of not precision but targeted therapy in breast cancer revolves around the use of tamoxifen and aromatase inhibitors in women that have estrogen receptor positive disease or Herceptin in individuals that have her 2 positive disease. These proteins serve as targets for specific drugs. The next iteration in this field was uh, the use of genomic profiling of early-stage disease to guide management. You've heard of tests such as Oncotype, which uses a 22-gene panel, Mammaprint, which uses a 70-gene panel. Those two tests can help guide selection of chemotherapy versus endocrine therapy in early-stage disease. We have another test called the breast cancer index that can help determine duration of endocrine therapy, five years versus 10, and there are several other uh, tests that are also available. In its current form, precision medicine in breast cancer involves a a broader genomic profiling of tumors, testing for hundreds of genes, and it's currently being used in metastatic disease to do two things to identify active drugs for a particular patient, as well as to identify clinical trials that may be ideal for a particular tumor. Examples of such uh, findings include alterations in genes that predict benefit of the new drugs, the CDK4-6 inhibitors. Some of you will have heard of IBRANS. Uh, palbocyclib uh, uh, and others uh, that can be predicted of value based on the results of genomic profiling. We have uh, genomic profiling data that can guide use of Affinitor or picray or findings that can help predict resistance to aromatase inhibitors. For example, uh, individuals with an ESR1 mutation have uh, resistance to aromatase inhibitors and are better served with pulvestrants. So if you have a woman with metastatic disease, that test can be helpful in even selecting the endocrine therapy that one would use. Early examples of significant successes were, are there. Um, a study presented at this year's uh, ASCO meeting just uh, two weeks ago showed that women who carry mutations in BRCA1 and 2 with early-stage breast cancer can be significantly impacted by the use of Olaparib, a, a PARP inhibitor, to improve survival. Other studies have shown benefit, again, from genomic-guided treatment versus standard selection of drugs. So, again, we have data that there is uh, benefit to this technology. Precision medicine has specifically led to a change in how clinical trials are being done across the world. Rather than taking hundreds to thousands of patients with breast cancer, for example, to test a new drug, current trials are being done in a more efficient way. Basket trials a term that is commonly used, have a targeted therapy that is being tested in multiple diseases that have a common molecular alteration. So rather than doing a study in breast cancer, basket trials may have melanoma, colon cancer, or breast cancer with the same genetic alteration against and, and looking at one drug. Umbrella trials are another terminology, and these are one single disease Multiple drugs being tested aimed at various subgroups of patients. So these two approaches are changing how we do clinical trials in cancer. Again, these trials are primarily being uh, done in metastatic disease for now, but I foresee that the future will be different. And again, some early results are showing promise from this approach. What are the current limitations of precision medicine? I think there are three or four main ones. First, understanding what an important mutation is versus a non-important mutation, or sometimes called a driver mutation, because you may find many alterations in a tumor, and they may not have the same importance. Number two, having enough drugs to target the abnormalities that are found. We know that TP53 is the most commonly found alteration in cancer, yet we don't have drugs to target it. And then many cancers are silent. They don't have significant alterations that can be identified, so we can't guide treatment. The next topic is talking uh, with your doctor. Precision medicine has limitations, but it can be useful, and it is always appropriate to bring up topics of interest to your physician. The basis of precision medicine begins with genetic testing of the individual and genomic testing of the tumor. And I think the question is not, uh, should it be done, uh, but when should it be done, and should it be done once or should it be done multiple times? This information can be helpful uh, in selecting drugs for treatment now and in selecting drugs for future treatment, as well as in looking at available trials that a patient may be able to participate in. So again, not when to do it, but really um, not should it be done, but when to do it. And then the next question is, should it be done on tissue from a tumor or can it be done on blood? There are certain individuals where a bone biopsy is the only tissue available and there's not sufficient material, so we now have the capacity to test blood for circulating tumor cells or tumor-derived DNA. And finally, the question is, should it be done multiple times? At times of each change in therapy plan to help guide management, Probably. I think we're still on our way to get there. So I think this is very interesting, exciting uh, changes that are happening in the management of cancer. Finally, let me finish by uh, answering a question that uh, Carolyn asked me to address, and that was uh, commenting on COVID-19 vaccines and cancer. I totally, fully support the use of COVID vaccines in cancer patients, but it's important to discuss it with your team to make sure that they're also fully on board. And we know that the effectiveness of vaccines varies by the immune competence of the patient. Certain individuals that are immune suppressed may not have the same immune response to the vaccine and may not have the same protection. So it's important to follow current guidelines, to be cautious, to wear masks to continue social distancing, because again, we're not sure that every patient is fully protected, but all of our programs are very much attuned to this information, and I think it's important to work with your team, but absolutely support vaccines. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much,
1: Dr. Grona. That was really outstanding and, and really set a wonderful tone for the program today, put us in a context. Um, so thank you so much. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A um, as well, so thank you. And our our next uh, speaker is Dr. Rono Yeager, and Dr. Yeager is medical oncologist, gastrointestinal oncology service, associate attending physician, Department of Medicine, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Dr. Yeager will be address, addressing precision medicine's role in informing treatment decisions and predicting response to treatment, um, the role of precision medicine in informing treatment decisions for colon cancer, and how precision medicine contributes to treatment options and quality of life. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Yeager.
3: Thank you, Dr. Mesner, and it's my pleasure to join today and to discuss the role of precision medicine in informing treatment decisions with a focus on precision medicine and colorectal cancer. So we've heard a great background on precision medicine, and I wanted to highlight two main outputs of precision medicine in clinical care. The first is identifying molecular subgroups that may have distinct clinical characteristics. So patients that may share molecular change within their tumor may have a similar clinical behavior. Um, where we can refine our understanding rather than thinking of all breast cancer, we can think of HER2-amplified breast cancer um, as an example that was discussed where patients may have um, some clinical features um, that are in common which can guide us as we think about where the tumor spreads, what scans we need to do, um, if some cancers may be more aggressive based on molecular features that can guide us in terms of surgery. For example, in colorectal cancer, we know that the presence of a V600E BRAF mutation, the most common mutation in the gene BRAF, leads to a more aggressive course and a tendency to spread within the abdomen. So knowing that can guide us as we think about how to weigh treatment versus um, doing surgery, and also when we think about oral therapy and when we're going to start oral therapy. The second uh, main output of uh, precision medicine and clinical care is identifying a more precise match therapy standard treatment targets cancer by going after cells that are dividing, um, or broad characteristics of the tumor or tissue type, Um, and it depends how you cut it, but one could say that looking at um, hormonal therapy is one way of going after hormonally-driven cancers, but looking at molecular characteristics can help us um, refine and hopefully be even more precise in the features of the tumor that we are targeting. Our goal is, by being precise, is to have a treatment that preferentially affects the tumor over the normal tissues, and so this will hopefully increase the activity of our treatment and lower side effects. And by doing that, we can improve the response and hopefully have patients tolerating treatment and have an improved quality of life. So there are two um, main types of predictive factors that come from these um, from understanding the main character, molecular characteristics of the tumor, there are either negative and positive predictors. Positive predictors are factors within the tumor that tell you that the tumor is likely to respond to treatment, so having that alteration guides you to pick a match treatment. A negative predictor is something that tells you that this patient is less likely to respond and and can guide you and say it's not worth the time for this patient to get this treatment because this change within the patient's cancer makes them unlikely to benefit from that treatment and just to have toxicity. So, as we heard, the first step is to understand what are the molecular drivers of the cancer so we can try to figure out what is the subset what is the special characteristics, and what are the potential match therapies. And we're going to hear in detail from our pathology colleague about how this is done, but in colorectal cancer, it is often done by sequencing and looking for molecular alterations. And at this point in colorectal cancer, we have several targeted therapies that are already used in the clinic and are FDA-approved for metastatic disease, and I want to take a moment to walk through that. So the first are drugs that block the um, EGF, Epidermal Growth Factor Receptor. These are drugs called cetuximab um, or Erbitux, panitumumab or Vectabix. And they've been developed many years ago, about 20 years ago, and initially they were used for all patients. But as we've been using these drugs, we've been able to refine who are the patients who are most likely to benefit, and in so doing, we can um, select patients who will benefit from the drug and spare other patients these drugs and their toxicities. What we have found are factors that predict that patients are less likely to respond. And so we have negative predictors that guide us and say, for these patients, it's not worth the time to spend with this treatment. So common factors that you may see that your doctor tests for are mutations in genes called KRAS or NRAS, So you may say, oh, the tumor has a RAS mutation and the presence of these mutations prevent patients from responding to these drugs, so guide us in our choice of these drugs. Similarly, this BRAF B600E mutation I mentioned makes the tumor unlikely to respond. And then finally, the actual location of the tumor. So tumors that develop in what's called the right colon, so the first part of the colon, are unlikely to respond, while patients who have tumors that develop in the what we call the left colon or the rectum, the lower part of the colon, are more likely to respond. So we have these negative predictors, but by having them, we can pick out the patients who are most likely to respond, and when we give these drugs now, we are able to uh, uh, enrich our population so most patients can benefit from the treatment when we give them by giving it to patients with left-sided rectal tumors that don't have mutations that preclude response. The second um, alteration I I wanted to mention is the presence of a V600E BRAF mutation. This is our first positive predictor predictor in colorectal cancer, as recently we have an FDA-approved treatment for patients who have a BRAF V600E mutation within their tumor with an approval of a BRAF inhibitor as given together with an EGFR blocker. And this um, is important because, as I said, this is an aggressive subset, but now we suddenly have a new therapy, a new option, and our goal is to change something that's aggressive by having a matched treatment that we can actually go after it and go after it better to actually have patients live longer, where we have a success story with her 2 amplify breast cancer, where there's a lot of targeted therapy. We are behind that in colorectal, but the, we have our first step with this positive predictor for patients who have a BRAFV600E mutated tumor. We also have um, uh, recently approved the use of immunotherapy. So in some cancers, immunotherapy is given very broadly as many patients with that cancer respond. But in colorectal, the gut appears to be protected from the immune surveillance, and so we find that the gut doesn't respond well to immunotherapy. But patients who are in a subset of what we call microsatellite instability, either um, inherited syndromes that um, uh, put patients at risk for colorectal cancer or patients who have had alterations that lead to changes that um, have more mutations within this tu- their tumor. There's about 4% of patients with metastatic colorectal cancer who have these microsatellite instable cancers. But finding that gives us a positive predictor of response to immunotherapy and gives us a treatment that has a high uh, chance of working. So our goal is to look at everyone's cancer and say what is driving the cancer and to give a match treatment. And we're moving towards that as we slowly define um, what what we can see in the genetic changes are the drivers and making new drugs. And there are some emerging therapies that will hopefully extend um, who we can treat as now we have only a few uh, targeted therapies for colorectal and for many cancers. So the first I would mention is HER2 amplification, which is well-established in um, breast cancer, occurs in about 3% of colorectal cancer, and we uh, we use targeted therapies as well, but we need combinations to get responses. The second is NTRAC fusion, So fusions of genes in the NTRAC family is very rare, less than 1%, but it does occur, and when it occurs, we have drugs that work very well. So that is something that can be tested for. And finally, mutations in KRAS. So we mentioned that this causes resistance to the EGFR blockers, but there are new drugs that are being developed. And the first um, of those drugs um, are these uh, drugs that are selective to a specific mutation, the G twelve C mutation in KRAS. And Dr. Arbor may speak more of this as it's important in lung cancer, but for patients with colorectal cancer with this mutation, we have many clinical trials, so we now have the potential of match treatment um, for these patients, Um, and we're hopefully going to develop um, treatment and extend the group of patients who can have a match uh, therapy. So finally, a moment about quality of life. Um, So obviously our goal here is to improve quality of life by personalizing treatment so that we have a good efficacy and less uh, side effects. And this has become increasingly important for us to actually look at directly and to have patients guide us on how they feel and report their own symptoms um, while on clinical trials. So in the BRAF trial that was recently completed for FDA approval, patients filled out questionnaires saying um, how – answering many questions about their quality of life and their activity levels. And what the trial found was that the, these selective BRAF drugs, in addition to um, helping patients live longer, they actually were able to maintain quality of life. So, so patients had a delay in any decline in the quality of life while they were on these treatments. And um, trials now that are being done also are starting to put in these qu- patient questionnaires so that we can hopefully develop treatments that are both working against the cancer and helping patients feel better.
1: Wow. Thank you so much, Dr. Yeager. That was really, uh, really outstanding, and um, really uh, really went into great detail in terms of the real benefits of precision medicine um, um, for for many cancers, but your focus on colon cancer, but it was very dramatic, and thank you so much. Thank you, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well, but thank you. Um, And our next speaker um, is Dr. Catherine Arbor, and Dr. Arbor is assistant attending Thoracic Oncology Service Memorial Catering Cancer Center, and she is going to be addressing how precision medicine is different from targeted treatments, the role of precision medicine in informing treatment decisions for lung cancer, and the increasing role of telehealth and telemedicine appointments. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Arbor
0: Thank you so much for the introduction, and again, thank you to the whole group that's listening in on the call today. Um, It's my pleasure to talk about precision medicine kind of more broadly in cancer care and then specifically within the management of lung cancer, because it's so foundational to how we manage patients with lung cancer uh, so important and part of our day-to-day care um, and can be, uh, you know, as really dramatically transform the lives of our patients as we manage them. I think one thing to keep in mind is we've been talking a lot about precision medicine, and um, We discuss about how could it be different than targeted therapies. Sometimes, and you might read about that the words are used interchangeably, but I would argue that um, targeted treatments are just one aspect of precision medicine. Um, One aspect is to identify on precision medicine testing uh, oncogenic drivers or drivers of the cancer cells that are causing them to grow and divide, oftentimes that are leading to mutant proteins that are there and leading to cancer cell growth. And depending on the driver that we identify, we may or may not have a targeted therapy. So identifying that quote-unquote driver that's there may tell us about the biology of the cancer, uh, how aggressive it may or may not be, how likely it is to exist in a certain patient population. For example, um, there are some lung cancers that are more clearly found in patients uh, who have no history of smoking, others are more linked to smoking. Um, And so there can be differences in terms of the biology of disease, Um, and then the aspect of Once we identify that oncogenic driver, do we have a targeted therapy uh, that's available? And this is an evolving field. So uh, a report for mutations may say, you know, five years ago that we had no drugs approved in that space or that are effective, but this is a constantly evolving space. And so, you know, um, new drugs are approved all the time. New drugs are in clinical trial development. um, And so we may go back to those reports and newly identify patients for clinical trials. The other thing to keep in mind is specifically in lung cancers, but I would argue in all cancers, that personalized medicine is about more than just the mutations that are in a patient's tumor. Um, it may There might be other markers in terms of um, how likely immunotherapy drugs are to work or what the actual type of cancer. Not all lung cancers are the same. Uh, there might be certain features that the pathologists look at on the microscope in addition to um, uh, the genetic testing of the tumor that may inform treatment changes. And you know, as others have mentioned on the call, all of these goals are to identify as much as possible using all of the different factors, which treatments are likely to be most effective at controlling the cancers um, and which treatments are likely to perhaps not have a benefit, and we would like to avoid those treatments and avoid unnecessary side effects as we can. So trying as much as possible not to have a one-size-fits-all approach to um, a patient with a given cancer and uh, drill down a little bit more details on, on what would be beneficial for that individual person and that individual tumor type. One to mention that targeted treatments um, may be oral therapy, like small molecule inhibitors. They may be IV therapy, like antibody treatments. And while these treatments do have potential side effects, they may be different than other treatments like chemotherapy or other treatments like immunotherapy medicine. And each of the side effects of those, those particular drugs may be different for each of the different drugs. And so it's really something that to discuss with your oncologist and recognize that these are still cancer treatments and they may have potential side effects. But in general, again, we want to think about the quality of life and the big picture and management of these side effects. Um, and so that's an important conversation to have uh, with your physician about it. Other things about targeted treatments that are relevant, as Dr. Yeager had pointed out, is that the same targeted treatment may work on multiple different tumor types, and may in fact be FDA approved for a specific mutation, no matter what type of cancer that is. And for example, this is um, NTRK fusions for that. Um, or drugs may work differently. So, for example, um, these uh, new KRAS mutation. KRS uh, uh, inhibitors, and specifically in patients with G12C mutations, these drugs might work differently in patients who have lung cancer versus colon cancer. Um, and so uh, just the presence of the mutation really has to be the presence of the mutation in a particular tumor to inform us how well a drug may or may not work, uh, and whether it was tested in a broad, what we call umbrella study, as Dr. DeGrano pointed out, or a specific clinical trial that was just within one particular tumor type. Um, and then specifically talking about the role of precision medicine, and, and like to move on specifically to talk about lung cancer. Um, it was really one of the um, first areas to look at these specific gene alterations about what targeted therapy can do in this space. Um, one of the first mutations that was identified is in an EGFR mutation. And again, these drugs that were EGFR inhibitors that we talked about were not developed specifically at first for patients with EGFR mutations. They are actually developed in Clinical trials run for all patients with lung cancer um, as kind of a a big approach. And what was identified in those clinical trials is that um, overall they helped patients live longer, but it wasn't that all patients were benefiting a small amount. There were distinct patients, a small subgroup of patients, about one in ten, that had dramatic and profound responses in terms of how much that these medicines improved, um, their clinical symptoms improved. Uh, you know, shrunk their cancer on CAT scans, and it was really remarkable in terms of how well these patients did on the drugs. Um, And it was later identified that these patients had EGFR mutations, and it's really that population of patients that we should be using these drugs. And that's really laid the foundational work for all of the work that's gone into lung cancer to identify mutations that we have targeted there for. So um, it's a little bit of alphabet soup, but I'll list off those mutations that we currently have FDA-approved therapies for include EGFR, ALK, ROS1, BRAF V600E, MET, uh, exon-14, RET alterations, and Trk fusions, and then now newly, just over the past month, uh, new drugs that are approved for patients with KRAS G12C mutations. And so this is a rapidly evolving field, and the number of mutations that we have FDA-approved targeted therapies for in lung cancer keeps growing, um, and it's imperative that we test and recommend testing all patients. Some of these mutations may be more common in people who uh, have no history of smoking but develop lung cancer, but can be seen in all patients, regardless of their smoking history, and therefore we feel as lung cancer oncologists it's imperative that every single patient have testing for all of these mutations And it's usually more easily done with a large panel of alterations that can undergo that testing. As was mentioned, if it's not possible to do that testing actually on the tumor tissue, uh, this testing can also be done from the blood. And so um, in either platform, either the tissue testing um, or the blood testing uh, is uh, incredibly important for the management of someone's lung cancer. Um, And this is one thing that guides this first initial treatment. So we know for patients with an EGFR mutation that and targeted therapy is better than chemotherapy or immunotherapy that's also used in lung cancer Personalized medicine in lung cancer, though, also takes into account other features of a tumor. For example, we would argue uh, that um, expression of a particular protein on a cancer cells to determine how likely immunotherapy would be effective is still personalized medicine for that approach. Um, and so we test for a protein called pdl one on everyone's tumor cells, uh, and depending on how high that expression is, it may identify that targeted therapy is not the best treatment for someone's lung cancer, and in fact, um, immunotherapy may be the best. Treatment. So we use these in, in companion and we use these together, both the molecular alterations as well as the PDL1 testing. Um, for precision medicine, as Dr. Jaeger referenced, we have as well as uh, as just like in colon cancer, also in lung cancer, these positive predictive and also negative predictive factors. so, um, some presence of other mutations in a lung cancer tumor may give us ideas about how aggressive a tumor is, and may give us also ideas about that some therapies may be less likely to work. For example, one common mutation in lung cancer that we see is called STK11, and this may indicate that immunotherapy, not that it can't work, but that it may be more unlikely to work in this setting. Um, but that may not affect how likely targeted therapy approaches are to work. and so. These are important um, things that uh, uh, your lung cancer oncologist is looking at. Targeted therapy is important to give access not only to FDA approved therapies, but also obviously to clinical trials, uh, and that's incredibly important in the development of these new medicines. And again, I would think that the, one of the newest developments in lung cancer is, as Dr. Yeager indicated, um, KRAS G12C mutations. These are mutations that are identified. In about 12% of patients with lung cancer overall, um, which sounds like a relatively small number, but, you know, we have drugs approved for patients with 1% of lung cancer cases. So this is relatively common. It's the most common type of KRAS mutation uh, in lung cancer. About 40% of patients with a KRAS mutation overall will have that uh, specific mutation. Um, And specific inhibitors for patients with G12C mutations have been in development for several years now, and we're just, uh, the first such drug was just FDA approved called Sodoracib um, about a month ago by the FDA, and is now we're seeing it in the hands of patients in clinic, which is wonderful, uh, and many other clinical trials in that space. And so much work to be done, but this is an example of a field moving quickly um, that uh, reports may indicate that there are clinical trials that might be particularly relevant for patients. I would mention about the KRAS mutations. Uh, These drugs are specifically for patients who have a G12C mutation. They do not work against other types of KRAS mutations, for example, G12F, G13D. There are a number of other mutations that are there, and we're hopeful that more drugs will be developed in the future to um, address those other types of mutations. And then finally, I want to talk about the increasing role of telemedicine and telehealth appointments. Um, In the midst of COVID, obviously, there was wide adoption of this as patients um, wanted to stay closer to home. And as physicians, there's been differences in how these have been adopted across the board and across different institutions. Uh, I would say that nothing can replace being in person with our patients in clinic, uh, and we love to have that and and build those connections, but they can be really valuable for patients. You can sometimes, platforms have ability to bring in multiple people in for visits. Uh, Even a family member that lives distantly away can reduce travel when you aren't feeling well um, and may be helpful for patients who, for example, live far away from an academic center and may have a rare tumor type or a rare mutation that's identified on a Um, personalized medicine, um, uh, targeted therapy, you know, panel of mutations and give them access to an expert. Um, Some things may still need to be done in person, physical exam, lab monitoring, things like that, Um, but I think they can really... Uh, augment someone's ability to care for them and have access to physicians. Uh, Technology is sometimes challenging, uh, and so definitely you want to feel comfortable with that and understand the platform that's available um, at the institution uh, that you're receiving your care and feel comfortable from that. Um, And uh, make sure that your friends and family, if they'd like to join in, are comfortable as well. And it helps to be prepared and and test that out prior to the visit, both from the physician side and then also from the patient side. Again, there's no no 100% replacement for an in-person visit, but I think telemedicine is certainly here to stay um, and will hopefully give um, all of our patients access uh, to more care more
1: broadly, and we're very thankful for that. Thank you. Uh Thank you so much, Dr. Arbor. That was really outstanding and just a wonderful presentation. And actually, um I think that you uh, addressed really the real benefits of um, precision medicine in for lung cancer patients and also in terms of um, how important um, uh, the um, telehealth visits are for patients as well and how much how much they can benefit from them. So I know those are questions for you during the um, Q and A as well, so, but thank you very much. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Michael Morrow. Dr. Morrow is le- Dr. Michael Morrow is the leader of myeloproliferative neoplasms program, member of Memorial Sloan-Kettering Cancer Center, professor of Weill Cornell Medicine. And Dr. Morrow will be addressing the role of precision medicine and informing treatment decisions for leukemia and blood cancers guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology and prepared list of questions. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Morrow.
4: Oh, thank you, Carolyn, and uh, thank you all for joining us, and, and thank you to my colleagues for um, covering a lot of areas and some just some wonderful information about, about solid tumors, breast cancer, lung cancer, colon, colorectal cancer, and a lot of the things I might mention um, have come up earlier, but um my task in the next few minutes is to talk about blood cancers um and leukemia and a little bit about um pairing for and so um I always like to think of one of the leukemias that I actually look after a lot um chronic myeloid leukemia as a bit of a test case for probably the theory of targeted therapy um I wouldn't say we've set the the ironclad example of precision medicine that way. But really, I, I think they are related in many ways. And I'm going to cover that last. But um, suffice it to say that leukemia historically was uh, – blood, uh, blood cancers were historically treated by looking at blood counts, looking at um, the tissue and question under a microscope, maybe a lymph node, maybe a bone marrow sample, maybe just the blood. And, and I'm so delighted we're going to hear from our pathology colleagues in just a few minutes. And and we would make a visual or a a size, shape, appearance diagnosis, which was very basic. You know, we would say this is a leukemia of a certain cell type, and we would apply basic chemotherapies that we knew treated leukemia cells or cells that grew too fast. And that was a very basic way to treat. And I'll start with acute myeloid leukemia. And for for decades, we had just a really standard regimen for acute myeloid leukemia, and it worked um, in some patients quite well. It worked in others partially or for some time. Unfortunately, it didn't work um, very well for some, and, and we didn't have a lot of other options. And, wow, we have completely reversed the course um, with precision medicine. So by unraveling the genetic code and through sequencing and through genetic testing, um, through personalized approaches to patients looking at the, um, their comorbidities, their health, their tolerabilities for chemotherapies, even down to, for example, in pediatric leukemia, looking at the way children metabolize medications, um, we've been able to change the way we treat leukemia, And I'll highlight that in AML, we now have a completely different approach where we know before we start to do anything, we need to um, take a precision medicine approach and profile the enemy. We need to know what makes this leukemia tick. My mentor, Brian Drucker in Portland, Oregon, 20 plus years ago, or maybe now 30-ish years ago, um, use that principle to understand CML and said, why is this leukemia so specifically related to a genetic uh, fusion and and, and the output from that genetic fusion? What makes that tick and how could we overcome that with a targeted drug? But precision medicine allows us to identify the proper target. Um, And in AML, as my uh, colleague, uh, speaking about lung cancer mentioned, sometimes we have very narrow windows where we have just a few percent of patients who might have a certain abnormality. Um, I'll give an example of a great, Breakthrough in research uh, called the Beat AML trial, which um, is is, um, supported by you know a similar effort like cancer care, you know leukemia, lymphomas, and another patient advocacy group, which has been tremendous to help with um, cancer research. And in leukemia, they're uh, helping uh, and really um, launch this trial where we profile a patient with AML and then put them into a number of different arms, looking at different treatments. And you know the, the trial already has output. Of course, we're looking at now more than a dozen or, or so key arms um, saying a patient with X abnormality will get Y drugs, et cetera. We know now that patients overall who go on targeted therapy do better than patients who receive just good good basic therapy. Um, you know, thank goodness we have therapy for all patients, but it's clear that we can do better. And and this, this trial is already reading out positive and we've had some, you know, some dramatic results. Um, we've had development of targeted therapies in AML, which have been clear breakthroughs targeting something which makes meat cells grow quite fast and is is um, something related to a key early factor in blood cell growth called a stem cell factor, a foot-free mutation. Mutations in the metabolic pathways of cells, things that we really probably couldn't have envisioned we would find a mutation and recognize how that would lead to a buildup of of damage in leukemia, something called an IDH mutation or isocitrate dehydrogenase, IDH1-2. We have oral drugs for both those. Mutations, which are targetable lesions in AML, and those are dramatic breakthroughs in AML. Um, we um, we know that this change in AML has extended to other cancers as well, and I, I think the, um, the way we treat AML again has gone from really a sort of one horse show to a, mul- a multiplicity of different options. And um, importantly, we we have widened our armamentarium by borrowing from other therapy. Fields uh, treatments that were previously used, for example, in lymphoid cancers that target uh, genes related to programmed cell death or apoptosis. Uh, a particular drug called Venetoclax uh, inhibits a target a protein called BCL2. Um, dramatic improvements um, with with the addition of that drug in, in AML. Let me switch gears and talk about some other leukemias. Um, how about ALL, uh, another you know of the acute leukemias where Um, We know we have sort of a bimodal distribution. We often see this in younger uh, patients. We also see it in in adults. The cure rate for ALL has been um, a huge story in children where we have a very high cure rate, and and precision medicine has clearly played a role there. So now we break it down by looking at some of the basic principles of leukemia cells. So they have too many chromosomes, too few chromosomes, because that's part of the damage that can cause leukemia. So they have a specific target again something called the Philadelphia chromosome, or do they have something that looks like the Philadelphia chromosome or behaves like the Philadelphia chromosome. Those patients might be eligible for um, targeted drugs like the drug Sprycel or Desandib, which is used in in, uh, leukemias with this Philadelphia chromosome, very helpful in ALL. Um, This is where we can really tailor the treatment to a patient. Um, When a patient has a certain Profile and they might respond extremely well very early in ALL, for example. We can, we know we can pull back. We don't have to give as much chemotherapy as we might give to another patient who's doing well, but might not have that same um, degree of clearance of their leukemia. So we can tailor further um, beyond just picking the right medications and picking the right recipe by saying, well, how fast is it cooking? Can we pull it out of the oven faster? We've seen huge advances in ALL um, in another area called CAR T-cell therapy, which is engineered T-cells from the patient to help treat their own cancer. Now, that isn't really a uh, targeted or a precision approach. It's really more of a very high-level immunotherapy or immune harness therapy, which fortunately works in a broad sense. It will work in ALL that might have various different targets or might have been through different precision types of therapy and may not have been able to, we um, might not have been, hold, been able to hold the patient in remission, and it's welcome to use where this Philadelphia chromosome makes it. So huge advance there. What about chronic leukemia? CLL, um, probably the, one of the most common blood cancers, has definitely seen a, a, a dramatic shift in their adoption through precision medicine um, by recognizing big groups. I think my uh, one of our earlier speakers today mentioned how some patients can have um, you know a, a similar uh, disease, but have very different profiles, and, and their precision medicine profile might predict very different outcomes with chemotherapy. Patients who have don't have any damage to a tumor suppressor gene that we all have, which we you know we need, called p53, and who have their CLL cells might have gone through a certain degree of maturation, and, and they've they've sort of organized their immune-related genes, can do very well with chemotherapy and, and have a prolonged remission. They not need that, might never need therapy again. Whereas patients who might have damage or or are missing in their leukemia cells this tumor suppressor gene called p53 really need different therapy. Um, so so we can really uh, tailor and, and use precision medicine in CLL uh, and and take uh, hold of targeted therapies against uh, BCL2 against uh, other um, tyrosine kinase uh, targets called tyrosine kinase inhibitors or BTK inhibitors. So. So so you can see this, the pattern here. You know, we went from a very simple approach um, to looking at leukemia cells under the microscope and saying, well, it's, a, it's this kind of leukemia and um, what what kind of medicines kill those kinds of cells to what's well, let's diffuse the bomb, what makes this tick. My disease area, which is mainly CML and myelopilibrary disorders, has benefited tremendously as well. We have more broad approaches. Um, again, TML was a disease in which targeted therapy really was probably um, the, a great example, was set by identifying the, the kinase or the enzyme that turned on leukemia cells, and that it was a singular target. And that a, a host, now five and soon to be six targeted drugs have been approved, all basically um, perfect arrows towards the bullseye of this BCR able. Um, Uh, or near-perfect, that is, uh, target uh, arrows for the the CCO-able enzyme that's altered, Um, we can overcome variations in the target by using stronger inhibitors or inhibitors that are able to still work when the target is mutated or looks slightly different. That's a little bit of a different approach, but we do use precision medicine to screen for mutations, to uh, assess patients' comorbidities, and we really target, we really adjust therapy by, response kinetics. How quickly has someone gone into remission? In CML, we're, t- we're likely to change therapy if someone's going into remission just beautifully, but it's just not fast enough because we're pretty demanding. And fortunately, we have very good options to upgrade or to move therapy along just to speed up the remission to know that we can maximize the patient's chances of long-term success by, by moving the speed along. We In myeloproliferative disorders, which um, is one of the last cancers just to mention, you know, we, we really have used precision medicine to profile the genetics of the tumor. And, and this is where, again, one patient may look similar with regards to how their blood is, how they're feeling, maybe some of the problems they're having, but their genetics or their molecular changes may tell a different story. Um, you know, myelofibrosis is probably the best example where we have a, a chronic uh, condition in the bone marrow which is causing damage, and, and it's increasingly limiting blood production and causing growth in the spleen. But the genetics of that condition can really predict that acute myeloid leukemia may be closer than we know. We have to treat differently we have very good therapies again targeted therapies called Stat pathway inhibitors or jackAffe, which work quite well and now we're, uh, we're developing a fair number of combinations and alternative jack inhibitors so again the target targeted therapy on keeps growing and the precision medicine helps us understand which patient may need which therapies and how they're doing it and how to move through the spectrum in the last minute, I want to coach you on on how to prepare for your telemedicine visit um, and telemedicine can be a little bit daunting for some people. I think the first thing to, to mention is become familiar with your technology. Um, I'm, I'm sort of middle-aged, I guess, right now, and I think I'm pretty good at technology, but I still see that my children, my daughter, is much better than I am, and I think many of us recognize that it's um, never a bad idea to ask for a hand from someone who's maybe more tech-savvy with regard to what device or what um, platform you're using. Test it out. Talk to your the the office. Make sure you know what you need. Um, I'm increasingly asking people: Are you on a phone? Are you on a tablet? Are you on a computer? Because I want to show them things. I can share my screen. Um, when you're getting ready, I think in um, the program was listed to prepare your questions, have a list. That that goes. That's not new. That that was something we um, would have hoped pe- pe- people would um, aim to do, even if they were meeting in person. And I still recommend that. Um, don't be shy to show us things. Uh, don't show us things that we shouldn't be seeing. Don't show us things that. Um, some, some, someone shouldn't walk behind the, the camera, of course, you know, when they shouldn't uh, or, or, or uh, be caught uh, in an embarrassing moment. But we do want to see things in telemedicine because, you know, it, it is a little bit different than in person where we can get, get a sense for someone quite readily. But if you have a, you know, a new spot, a new lump, a new bump, something that's going on, you, you need to have us try to assess. Sometimes we can actually learn and, and, and glean a lot just from looking and, and hearing and talking to someone um, through the telemedicine platform. Um, it's um, – it's okay to have others on the call too. I want to say, you know, and I often find that people are shy. There's always, as often someone behind the camera, um, coaching, asking questions. It's okay. Bring them around to the front. Um, we always like to know that there's a caregiver or a, a friend or family member that's there to help to answer questions. But share the platform, share the stage. Make sure that the person who uh, the doctor wants to talk to is is available and able to to, to be the focus. Uh, don't don't um, don't uh, let others dominate with if they if they uh, shouldn't be, and and um, and understand that it is hopefully a tool that we can use. It doesn't have to replace in person medicine. It's been a huge plus in the pandemic. It is here to stay. And and talk to your doctor and your office openly about how to use it. Don't don't be afraid to say I, you know should I come in in person? Is the, is it telehealth or telemedicine? Is it okay? Or, or how to move forward in the future? Because again, it's here to stay. So I'll stop there and thank you for your attention.
1: Oh, Thank you so much, Dr. Morrow. That was very comprehensive. I appreciate that, and I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Joseph Corey. Dr. Corey is Professor, Division of Pathology and Lab Medicine, Department of Hematopathology, Medical Director, Clinical Expansion, Division of Pathology and Lab Medicine, Executive Director, MD Anderson Cancer Network, Division of Pathology and Lab Medicine, University of Texas, MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Dr. Corey will be addressing the role of the pathologist and open notes, asking your healthcare team and pathologists to help you understand open notes. Um, My pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Corey.
5: Thank you very much, Dr. Messner. It's really a pleasure to be part of this discussion, the stimulating overview of biomarkers and precision medicine uh, in patients with cancer. It is fair to say that all patients with cancer are touched by a team of professionals in the lab that generate results that guide treatment decisions. These professionals are led by physicians who are specialized in pathology and clinical laboratory testing often times with subspecialty expertise. So if anyone walks into a lab, they would see a humming operation with a variety of testing platforms that range from the most simple blood tests to the most complex, from a CBC or a chemistry panel to the most sophisticated high complexity tests such as next generation sequencing platforms. All of this happens in the background Oftentimes, it happens 24-7 without many of the patients knowing about the details. So it's really a privilege to be able to share with, uh, with the audience in this call what goes on behind those scenes. Really, precision medicine is predicated on pathology analysis tools. And it, at its essence, is a partnership between pathologists, oncologists, and other professionals who care for patients with cancer, including pharmacists, genetic counselors, and many others. So up to 80% of clinical decisions and determinations made in the lab are made on the basis of pathology and blood test results. Importantly, when we think about precision medicine and testing that is done to support precision medicine efforts, as Dr. Grana mentioned earlier, we need to think about genetic testing of the patient as well as testing that's done on the tumor tissue itself. we're gonna focus on on testing that's done on the tumor tissue itself for the next few minutes. These tests include analysis for mutations that compare oftentimes the findings when the patient first presents with their primary cancer, to, if applicable, findings that we might detect as the patient's disease progresses. This clonal evolution information is critically important. It's equally important, of course, to understand what frontline treatments are needed to address a patient's initial presentation. But the most important time often to understand what precision medicine tools or, or targeted therapies might be available is when we have a cancer that is more resistant and has progressed. We've heard many um, of, of my colleagues touch on, on the importance not only of mutation testing, but also testing at the protein level. This is certainly something that pathologists deal with on a regular basis. So protein level analysis is very important sometimes for screening for certain targets of therapy or confirmation of certain findings in in certain tumors. Microsatellite instability, for example, is an excellent example in colorectal cancers and many other kinds of cancers, including breast and an increasing list of cancers where uh, screening starts by evaluating the expression of proteins that are involved in DNA repair. The absence of those proteins could tell us a lot about the nature of the cancer and in today's um, practice settings can open the door for certain therapeutic options. Immune therapy is something that you all heard about um, really is something that is evaluated at a protein level by looking at the levels of a protein called PDL1, whose overexpression creates a protective environment for tumor cells that we can now circumvent through inhibitors. Importantly, um, a CAR T cell therapy, which was just mentioned by my colleague. Uh, is also predicated on what protein is expressed on the surface of tumor cells that guides where CAR T cells need to go and perform their work. It is important to remember that all tests done in any lab are a function of many factors that need to come in place appropriately to ensure the adequacy, the precision, and the informative value of these tests. We think about biomarkers, as well as all other tests performed in a lab, as having three major components, pre analytic, analytic, and post-analytic. Three analytic factors are extremely important. They include transportation of the sample, under what temperature, under what controls, uh, within what uh, stabilization medium as the specimen comes out of the patient and is taken over to the lab. If preanalytic factors are not controlled appropriately, one might see imprecise results come out at the other end. Totally wrong results that could indicate the absence of a certain protein uh, might, of course, uh, be the basis of Uh, inaccurate or, or misinformed clinical decisions. That's the last thing anyone wants, of course, and there are lots of measures that are in place that are required by accrediting agencies and have now become standard of practice to ensure that tissue samples, blood samples, for that matter, any kind of sample that needs to be analyzed is stabilized appropriately to ensure no pre-analytic interference. The analytic component of a test is, is, um, of course, an area that's highly complex, but I'd like to point out that it's very important for um, pathologists and oncologists, as well as in discussions between patients and their providers to understand what test is needed for a particular phase of a patient's disease the sensitivity of a test that's needed when we're dealing with a bulky tumor is not going to be as critical as when we're dealing with analyzing for residual disease, let's say in the context of a patient who had acute leukemia and now has received induction therapy, so that uh, we need to understand at a deep level How much that response uh, was, uh, how much was the response that was achieved? The post analytic component of all of this is also important. It refers to the way cancer, the way tests are reported, the way reports are transmitted. And this is where I think it's very important and certainly in, in the United States has become increasingly important for patients to know what their test results are to be able to view them. This is very important, uh, not only so patients are aware and can carry those information, those data with them, should they decide to, to go seek care somewhere else, but it's very important to remember that uh, results and, and testing in cancer is a very highly specialized area. So while it's it's critical for a patient to be able to view the results, and, and that certainly is where uh, the, the trend uh, is going, it is uh, equally critical to be able to discuss those results with the oncologist or other providers, uh, just because the context is really uh, of utmost importance. I would like to now uh, move on and and discuss that Um, uh, labs uh, have an obligation to abide by testing guidelines and accreditation requirements. Those differ uh, across countries, but they all really share common denominators. Regardless, an overarching uh, important concept is to understand that um, testing can be done in lab that are, labs that are accredited, but the results need to be interpreted within the context of the, of the specific patient's case. And so it becomes very important to ensure that that communication line is strong and healthy between the providers who are caring for the patient and between the lab that is generating those results. At many of the leading institutions, those discussions happen on an ongoing basis on every new patient who presents through multidisciplinary planning clinics. In those uh, settings, these are conferences where all care providers within a subspecialty area come together. They discuss the patient's diagnosis, biomarker results, as well as the goals of treatment and, 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 and the risk stratification of the patient. And all of this collectively is really what makes precision medicine possible. It's the glue through communication, through joint planning and through joint discussion that really makes a dent in the way patients with cancer are enrolled in precision medicine uh, treatments, be it in a clinical trial setting, in a basket trial or an umbrella trial or more specific trials or when receiving standard of care therapy. So I hope I am leaving you with a picture of the importance of this entire dynamic when we think about precision medicine for cancer that takes treatment, that takes testing, and that takes communication into um, consideration to ensure as much as possible the best outcome for our patients. Thank you
1: Oh thank you very much dr. Corey. That was really outstanding and just a wonderful wonderful presentation. Thank you so much and very informative um, now actually um before we move on to the q and just want to ask all of you a few questions so we're going to move on to um just a few final questions um before we move on to the um uh, to the to the q and a so um, um I'm going to move on to questions, and I'm going to start with the first question. This is questions now for those of you um, just to tell us, um, uh, again, on a a scale of one to five. Um, As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of how precision medicine is different from targeted treatments. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And this is for people who are live streaming the call who can address these questions. And the next question is, as a result what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the role of precision medicine in deciding the treatment options for breast cancer, colon cancer, lung cancer, leukemia, and blood cancers. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of how precision medicine contributes to treatment options and quality of life. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two more questions. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the role of a pathologist in precision medicine. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And this will be the last question. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, and discussion of open notes. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. Thank you very much for participating in, in addressing these slides, these, um, these questions. It's really, very helpful to us to get a sense of what you know um, going out of a program. And now we're going to move on to the Q&A, and I'm going to ask Michelle to um, move us on to the Q&A.
0: Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. For those of you on the web who would like to ask a question, you can submit questions now by clicking Ask a Question.
1: And, um, we have some questions from our participants, so I'm going to start with our first question um, and the first question is um, I' bring all of our speakers on board so um the first question for Dr. Grana, do all centers offer precision medicine
2: they all centers have the capacity to offer precision medicine, whether they do it in house, they do it themselves with their own institutional panels or whether they order it through commercial providers such as Foundation Medicine, Keras, or others, every institution has access to those providers. And by and large, for the appropriate patient, insurance tends to pay for these panels that are done in metastatic disease or in early-stage disease when they are key uh, criteria that guide them. So, yes, it is widely available. Excellent.
1: And this is a question, actually, um, for, uh, for Dr. Um, Corey. Has precision medicine affected how specific genetic subsets of a population are treated? Do you think race, ethnicity could affect future treatment approaches as a result of precision medicine research?
5: Yeah, absolutely. I think um,
1: it was alluded to earlier how in
5: the past, the treatment of cancer was really appro- approached very broadly through chemotherapy and through uh, treatments that really did not discriminate or, or, or deter- were not determined uh, necessarily on the basis of molecular subsets of patients. As precision medicine and genomic testing have become available, those doors are now open. Um, I think we heard an example of how patients with acute myeloid leukemia who have idh1 or idh2 mutations now can really benefit from a very effective therapy that is targeted against that specific mutation precisely same story is coming is unfolding in lung cancer with kras g12c and so on and so forth it is very important for studies to continue to happen to understand the the prevalence and the incidence of certain genetic profiles in different racial and ethnic groups. Uh, these are uh, critical pieces of information. We know there are glimpses of this in certain cancer types, but we should continue to, to uh, improve our, our database um, and, and, and really kind of tailor uh, approaches that are taking into consideration patients' family history genetic makeup uh racial and ethnic uh, subsets and so on and so forth
1: thank you. thank you and a question for dr yeager if i don't have a, an extensive family medical history is precision medicine still useful
3: so um more specifically in colorectal cancer Precision medicine is um, part of our standard care for all patients with metastatic disease where we look to see if targeted therapies are appropriate and available, um, and I think we've heard examples from other cancers, So and it's not only um, inherited, um, many of the alterations that we um, can target are changes that occur within the tumor rather than being inherited, Um, We did hear about um, inherited genes in breast cancer, um, but part of the analysis is both, um, as we heard, looking at um, the patient and what's inherited and also the tumor specifically.
1: Thank you. And Dr. Arbor, um, are there risks for precision medicine? Thank you so much for the question. I
0: don't think that the, the risks from the precision medicine, generally come from if a biopsy is you know recommended and performed, um, and those risks might be different depending on the different site that's biopsied. So, for example, um, whether or not and it's important to talk with your physician, how likely is a precision medicine testing result going to impact a treatment plan? And if it's really not going to change things, just going through another biopsy just to do it may not be relevant for a given patient. Uh, Though in lung cancer, we almost always think that it's worth it to do that additional testing or to consider some other platform of testing um, in terms of, uh, um, you know, blood testing, for example. And then the other thing to keep in mind is that while insurance is, um, you know, generally cover this testing, uh, you may have a copay for that type of test. um, And so that's something in terms of the financial toxicity that comes with cancer care that might be worthwhile thinking about uh, and discussing with your physician uh, before you proceed with testing is understanding, you know, what your insurance plan covers from that uh, standpoint, and if you are, um, you know, if there's any copays or co coinsurance um, that uh, a patient might be um, have to contribute.
1: And a question for Dr. Mora: Will finding out more about how I respond to precision medicine targeted therapies be helpful if a family member is diagnosed with cancer?
4: that's a very good question um, you know certain certain findings in precision medicine may be uh similar in in uh, relatives and siblings um and for example certain you know genes are inherited related to chemotherapy metabolism I think so i, I think there there are definitely some possibilities where if one family member responds to a certain way to, and and in a basis is precision medicine, then it could help another although I would stress that I think each individual needs to have um, uh, personalized medicine or precision medicine approach, um, you know, when, where appropriate when appropriate, because we don't want to make any assumptions, and I think, um, you know, things, cancer can be tricky. It can evolve, um, and it may not exactly be the same in one individual um, in a family as, a, as another, even in an inherited cancer stance or, or, or an um, expected uh, cancer risk.
1: Thank you very much. I want to thank all our speakers. You've been phenomenal. I also want to thank all of our um, participants for asking such great questions. It's been a phenomenal – this particular program today has really been outstanding, Um, and I want to thank everyone for making that possible. And um, I do want to say a few words about um, those of you who. We have many more questions in queue, and we could literally go on for probably another two hours. So we actually, we this is an hour program, so I'm going to we're going, going to contain it at this point. But I do want to acknowledge the fact that if you do have a question and didn't get to ask a question, we want you to know that you can actually. Um, we want you to take your question back to your healthcare team. Whether you asked a question, have a question yet to ask, or have thought of another question, please do uh, you know bring that question to your um, healthcare team. That's very important, um, and they know the most about you. And then we're also, you're going to receive a Survey Monkey after today's program, and in that Survey Monkey, there will be a, um, a chance for, for us to provide you some additional links that might be useful useful to you or, or websites. Um, or organizations that could give you some additional information um, that was covered today or mentioned today um, that could be useful to you. And, and going to credible sites, that means a site that is really connected to probably a major cancer center or a major nonprofit organization that specializes in providing this type of information. And also we would want you to be sure to um, be sure that it's up to date it means that it's this year, almost this month, because information changes so rapidly. It's very important. Um, um, and so, um, and I also want, um, want to remind all of you that for those of you who might like to take advantage of the service of cancer care you can please contact us um, uh, both at our 800 number or visit our website um, and our oncology social workers will be happy to assist you with your questions and concerns that you might have and um, indeed um, that that it's a wonderful resource for you all as well Um, and um, I want to thank you all for your participation today. You've been a terrific group, and uh, I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for participating. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.